Well, I have had a lot of fun spending time with all of you this weekend, so thank you for having me down and for your hospitality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the time we've had together this uh, weekend, and we thank you for what we've been hearing from your word. Lord, for this last message, I pray that you please help me to be faithful to you, help me to feed your sheep faithfully, and I pray that you would stir all of us up now to not be cowards, but to be courageous for the sake of Christ, and for the sake of his kingdom, and for the sake of our world, Lord, that we would be moved to action as your people, to go beyond our own comfort and look beyond our own concern for ourselves, and to give ourselves, Lord, even to the point of death for the sake of your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's what I've told you so far in a nutshell this weekend. First, in case you didn't know yet, secularism is a lie that you must reject as a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. To try and combine secularism with faith in Jesus is syncretism and idolatry. We all know that now, right? If we didn't know it before, good. Don't do that. Second, in order to shake off our captivity to secularism... And all that it entails, including the captivity of our culture and our nation, we have to take God at his word and we have to fight with his word, making the devil to flee. Because nothing else will work except the word of God. Nothing else has divine power to tear down strongholds. So where do we go from here? I've told you what the problem is and I've told you what the solution is. Now what? Well, now I want to challenge you all not to be cowards like I suggested in the prayer that I just prayed. I want to make the idea of retreating so repugnant to you that you would choose death rather than running and hiding from the task that is before you. I want cowardice to be repugnant to you. The idea of retreating. Like I said in the first message, I hope to turn you all into a band of fire-breathing iconoclasts. And something you need to understand is that being a fire-breathing iconoclast takes courage because it is dangerous. It is dangerous. Idols do not not go quietly, okay? And our enemy does not give up his ground easily, yeah? It's something we have to be prepared to make sacrifices in doing. It is also something we can choose not to do so that we can protect and preserve our own comfort, right? It's very safe and comfortable to not be an iconoclast. And we can also make it look like we're being very holy and humble and pious and avoiding that job. Let me begin with a movie. There are a few movies that I absolutely refuse to ever watch again. Do you have any movies like that that you can think of? I'm never going to watch that ever again. And I saw it with my dear wife. She wasn't my wife yet, but we went and saw it during a college work day. And we got finished with our job, and so we went and saw Saving Private Ryan. How many of you have seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Okay. I will never see that movie again. Ever. And and the reason why is not because of the opening scene when all the young men are being cut to ribbons when when they're landing on Normandy. That's bad enough. But here's why I will never watch Saving Private Ryan again. There is a scene in a house in which a Nazi, has, a, Na- a Nazi has cornered and pinned down a Jewish-American soldier. 
And some of you are nodding because you know this scene. And he's got this Jewish fellow pinned down, and he's mocking him, and he takes his knife, and he slowly drives the knife into this man's chest and kills him. Okay? And the whole time that the German is doing this, there's another American soldier, you know what I'm talking about, who just sat crumpled and whimpering in another part of the house and did nothing while that was happening. He even let the enemy escape after having killed the Jewish man. He did nothing because he was a coward. And when I saw that scene, it flipped a switch in me. It filled me with rage, and I never want to see it again. And when I saw that scene, I learned something about cowards. And this is what I learned. I learned that cowards are content to allow others to suffer and die. Cowards are content to allow evil to win in order to keep themselves safe. Cowards refuse to fight. And cowards are willing to pay a high price for their own safety and comfort. You see, you, get, you follow where I'm going with that? And after seeing that, that film, I, I, my prayer is, Lord, let, not, never let that be true of me. Never let me play the coward. Never let me be the man who stood by whimpering and wetting himself while the innocent, well, not the innocent, but while others are being killed and destroyed and ruined by the wicked. Don't let that be true of me. Like I told you before, it is very easy for us to make our cowardice as Christians sound very pious and spiritual and profound. And when Christians retreat and play cowards, we usually do it in one of two ways. And I'm not bringing this up to you because I think you're cowards. Please don't misunderstand me. My, my point up here is not to say you're all cowards and you need to knock it off. My aim here is to encourage you to avoid this, from ever happen, to prevent this from ever happening in your own life so that you can identify and assure that you are never playing the coward as you follow Christ. But here are the two ways that Christians tend to be cowards in my experience. The first way that we do it, and I think this is probably the most common way, is that we claim that what happens in the world is none of our business, right? You don't mix Jesus with politics. You keep, you keep those things, you do what secularism says, and you keep those things neatly separated, and we don't mess with it. We see what's going on in the world. We see the babies being aborted. We see the lost souls and bondage to depravity. We see the fatherless left undefended, and we say, what can we do? It is the way of the world. Our business is with the church and potlucks and youth group and doctrine and liturgy, and Jesus is coming back anyway, so why does it matter? No use in polishing the brass on a sinking ship, right? Have you ever heard that saying before? No use in polishing the brass on a sinking ship, right? So what do we do? Well, we hide in the church then. We retreat from culture. We disengage from the battle that is at hand. And we, we allow ourselves, we give ourselves permission to not get involved and not get into the trenches. And when we do that, as I've already explained to you, when the church retreats from the culture like that, and we're not confronting the idols that are holding our culture captive, 
We are allowing the devil to have our neighborhoods and our towns and our states and our nation. We do not resist him. We do not fight for lost souls. We do not tear down idols. We play the coward instead. And what happens when we play the coward? What is the cost? You can tell me. What is the cost when we play the coward? Who suffers when we do this? Who? Our neighbors do. Human beings suffer when we play the coward. Christians, sinners suffer because we're not out there trying to save them. And that's our task, isn't it? Right? Who does Christ use to disciple the nations? Us. We're the ones who are called to do that. We're not supposed to stand by and wait for him to do it by some other means. He does it through us. So don't retreat. Don't say what happens in the world is none of my business. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's the world you've been called to disciple and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is your business. Absolutely. You need to have love and care and concern for those lost and perishing souls who are in bondage to captivity. You're supposed to be fighting for them, to set them free by giving them the gospel, even when they persecute you. What did we do to Jesus when he came to save us? Did we receive him gladly and welcome him and say, oh, you're right, thank you for coming? We crucified him. You should expect the same as you go to the, those who are perishing in their sins and give them the gospel. Don't expect a warm reception when you do that. Expect God to work and to save souls, absolutely, but expect to be crucified. Expect to be resisted and ridiculed and spat upon and beaten in various ways. That's what happens when you share the gospel. That's what happened when Christ came to save us, and that's what we should expect to happen when we give Christ to the nations. We're going to be met with resistance, and that's okay. Just why Jesus says the world's going to hate you because of me, but you still have to love the world. You have to still go and evangelize this world that hates you, just like he did, right? How else do Christians play the coward? I told you there were two ways. <clears throat> the other way is we just blend in. We play the chameleon, yeah? And we've already talked about this, but I'll revisit it here briefly. We become politically correct so we don't stand out so much. That's what we do. We say, we give the, girl, the world what it wants. Yes, you're right. We think that loving gay people means telling them that homosexuality is not a sin. So we agree that the, with Satan that the Bible gets an awful lot wrong and is open to some revision. And, you know, and that's cowardice. That's being ashamed of the gospel. And, and you know, when the church follows that route, when Christians try to hide by blending in and becoming like the world so that they won't be picked on and they won't be persecuted, they become good for nothing. Realize that. As a, and you let that be a warning to you to never play that game, to never try to hide by blending in. Because Christ says if you try to retreat and protect yourself by blending in to your culture, then you are good for nothing to him. Would Jesus really say that about me? Yes, he would say that about you. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. No longer good for anything. If you're just blending in, you're good for nothing to Christ and his work in the kingdom. Don't blend in. Don't blend in. 
So behind both of, this, both of these tendencies of, of, of playing the coward for Christians, the thing behind both of them is fear. And fear is the greatest threat to our effectiveness in the conquest of the kingdom and discipling the nations. It is fear. In battle, how good, how much, what worth are fearful troops? Are they of much use in battle if you have fearful troops? No, they're of little use because they're more concerned with protecting themselves than with victory. If you have good troops, what are they like? Good troops are willing to sacrifice everything for victory, including life and limb. They throw themselves at the enemy with no thought for themselves. That's how you win, isn't it? You don't win a battle by trying to protect yourself. You win a battle by not having concern with, for preserving yourself. Being wise in that, of course, but it's reckless or abandoned, reckless abandon. This is how we are to be with Christ in Psalm 110, verse 3. We are to be willing troops on his day of power or on his day of battle. That's, that's, how, that's what's supposed to describe us as Christians. We're willing troops following Christ. So fear is antithetical to service in the kingdom. And Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? That you can't be a coward, a fearful person, and follow him at the same time. Someone who is concerned with preserving their own lives. He tells us that those who are, who are preoccupied with worrying about themselves cannot seek the kingdom first. We see that in Matthew 6, 32-33. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear or live Seek first God, the kingdom and God's righteousness, right? You can't, if you're worrying about yourself, you cannot seek the kingdom first. And then he tells us in Mark, in chapter 8, in verses 34 through 35, that those who seek to save their own lives cannot follow Jesus. You can't follow him. If your concern is preserving yourself and your own comfort, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. That really has to sink in for us. No matter what I might say, I believe, regardless of whether or not I'm baptized, if I am more concerned with preserving my life and my comfort, then I cannot be a disciple of Christ and, in fact, am not a disciple of Christ. So how do we pursue the conquest of, this, of the kingdom? Right? We're not supposed to retreat. We're supposed to engage in conquest. The important thing we have to remember is that we do not pursue the conquest of the kingdom by putting our enemies to death. I said that earlier, I think, one of the other talks. We're, we're not pursuing this through jihad like the Muslims do, blowing ourselves up and killing other people. We don't pursue the conquest of the kingdom by putting our enemies to death. Rather, this is key, we pursue the kingdom by dying ourselves. That's how we engage in the conquest of the kingdom. We die. We die to ourselves. We do not put other people to death. So we are called to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. And if we are to destroy the works of the devil, then we have to look to our enemy's greatest defeat as our model and our strategy. And how did Christ disarm and put our enemy to open shame? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 14 through 15, through Christ crucified. That's how Christ accomplished his victory, right? By going to the cross. He didn't march into Jerusalem with an army. He didn't call down a legion of angels. 
He went to the cross and died. That's how he accomplishes victory, and that's how we must accomplish our victory in our context and our culture, is by going to the cross ourselves. Obviously not to pay the penalty for anyone's sins, but by giving ourselves for the sake of others, as Christ gave himself for us. That's how the devil is disarmed. Do you realize that if you put yourself to death, if you put the flesh to death, the devil has no hold on you? How can he tempt you? If you are consumed with zeal for Christ and love for him, and you are not distracted by your sin or self-preservation, then the devil has nothing on you. Because you're seeking Christ. He can't distract you with baubles and the things of this world. So the example of Christ crucified is our model for pursuing the conquest of Christ's kingdom. The cross is our strategy. Remember that. What is our strategy? It's not to overtake Washington, D.C. Don't misunderstand me. That's not our strategy. It cannot be. Our strategy has to be to go and die. If we are to live like conquerors rather than captives, then we must be prepared to be crucified and willing to do that no matter what. We have to be like Jesus. When he saw us in captivity to Satan, in captivity to our sin, under the wrath of God, he did not run away from that. He went to the cross. And as we look out and we see our neighbors in captivity to sin, and under the wrath of God, and following the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, our response should be to go and die for them in order to bring about their liberation in Christ. And Jesus says to us plainly that this is what it means to follow him. This is discipleship 101. It's necessary for every true disciple of Christ. Mark 8, 34. If you're going to be his disciple, then what do you have to do? Say it to me. What do you have to do to follow, if you're going to be a true disciple of Christ? What must you take up? Take up the cross. There it is. Like I told you before, I'm not giving you anything new this is not uh, you know, deep theology. This is easy discipleship stuff. But it's things that are easy, easily neglected because it's hard. It's challenging. It cuts to our hearts. So what does cross-bearing look like for you? That's an important question. It's easy for me to say, well, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Well, what does that look like for you? How do you pursue the conquest of the kingdom in your own life? What can you do for the kingdom? Well, you can give yourself up. That's what you can do. Not many people do that in our day and age, especially in America. Not many people give themselves up at all. Most people are, are consumed with self-interest and, and with their own lives. They're not very interested and giving themselves for the sake of others, let alone for the sake of Christ. So the courage of the cross, which I describe as being the complete giving of self for the glory of God and the good of others, the courage of the cross is uncommon in our day because we have been become accustomed to comfort and to ease and to security, and we do not wish to have these things disturbed. And understand that this is also a reformed disease, too. Okay, we reformed, right? And you're nodding. That's good. You know what? You're agreeing with me. I'm glad to see that. I think for reformed Christians, we like to become very insular, and we set up, we set up our little um, communes, our reformed communes, right? 
where we're, we're not like all those mushy-headed evangelicals over there who are so silly, and we're not silly like they are, and we understand everything that's wrong with the world, and the world is so wrong and so bad, but we've got it all right. Our doctrine is correct. Our liturgy is good. We've got everything where we want it. And so now, what's the temptation? To keep everything just so, to keep it neat and tidy and clean and safe and comfortable for us. That's a real threat, brothers and sisters. We dare not think that because God has delivered us from bad theology and from wrongheadedness when it comes to the things that our culture is doing, that that means we have arrived and there's nothing left for us to do so we can sit and engage in a lot of navel-gazing. It means that we have work to do. It means that God has given us much, and to whom much has been given, little is demanded, much is demanded. Reformed Christians, we should be the example to the world of what it means to be a fighting, cross-bearing Christian. We understand the sovereignty of God. We understand the cross of Christ. We understand the grace of God. And we should be the most zealous fighters for the sake of the kingdom the world has ever seen. Not insular and hiding, gazing at our navels. We should be out tearing down idols. Are you? Is that what you're doing? Or are you gazing at your navel thinking, God, I thank thee that I am not like Joel Osteen. We are by far the most comfortable people ever to walk the earth. And I say all this to you, not because I'm picking on you. I'm saying this to you because I am picking on me. This is all true of me. I love my comfort. I love my ease, my riding lawnmower. I like security. I like predictability. We all do. But I also recognize that I have to be willing to give these up for the kingdom. I have to be willing to sacrifice them and set them aside. So our desire as Christians must not be to live as comfortable a life as we can manage in this world because that is not what we are called to. We are not called to live comfortable lives. We are not called to live neat and tidy and orderly, predictable lives. We are called to follow Christ. We are called to take up our cross and follow him. Our Lord's life, as he came here to save us, was messy wasn't it? He was always fighting, always fighting with hypocrites and Pharisees and Sadducees. He was always ministering to those who were down and out and, in, and wrapped up in sin, who didn't know any better, who were clueless, always looking for them, always reaching out to them. His life was not tidy and comfortable. If your own comfort is your highest priority, then you will be of little significance in the kingdom. You will be a little use to the church or to her Lord. Don't let your, your comfort be your highest priority. I think we can say that a single 
cross-bearing, self-sacrificing saint is worth more to the kingdom than a hundred self-satisfied Christians who love their own comfort more than Christ. Ask God to make you that kind of a Christian. Ask God to make you uncomfortable. Ask him to help you to take up your cross and to follow him and to order your life in such a way so that those who are in need of mercy will become apparent to you. And understand what it means to show someone mercy. It doesn't doesn't just mean meeting their physical needs, giving them something to eat, giving them a glass of cold water. Showing someone mercy also means telling them the truth. Remember that, right? That's something, that's another element of deception that's present in our culture nowadays is that it's now unloving to tell someone the truth about their sin and to point them to the remedy in Christ. That's unloving and judgmental. No, it's not. Don't fall for that. It is a mercy to tell someone that they are in bondage to sin and to point them to Christ who can liberate them. That is mercy. So be prepared to be stretched beyond your own perceived limitations. Expect God to do more through you than you formerly believed to be possible. But that all has to begin with the cross. You cannot place any limits upon Christ's claim upon your life. You have to be all in to follow him. For any of these things that I've said to you to make sense in your life and to be played out in your life, you have to be completely surrendered to Christ. And you know something else. You have to be surrounded by other believers who are striving after the same thing. It's really hard to do this alone, almost impossible. So surround yourself with other believers who are going to push you to give yourself up and to take up your cross and follow Christ, who aren't going to let you become comfortable and complacent in your faith, but are going to push you to engage in the conquest of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example that Christ has given us that we are called to disciple the nations and to tear down idols, Lord, by giving ourselves as our Lord gave himself for the sake of others. We pray that you would help us to not be cowards, Lord, but to be filled with the courage of Christ, to not be afraid of those who oppose us, but to fear you instead, Lord, and to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the cause of your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we said that we'd have a Q&A. Does sure. anybody have any questions they want to ask Nate? Anything from anything he said in the three it's all fair game. messages? Anything is on the table. He said something that has been nagging at your mind or you have a question about? Or I guess there's one thing. We were talking about the um, realizing that well, I guess I'm going to say it. Yeah. Uh, there was one of the soldiers who was uh, just a really brave guy with every little striker, um, sat down and talked to just the brigadier who was, and he said, what you have to realize as a soldier is that you're already dead. Mm. I've heard of this quote before. Yeah, you have to realize that you're already dead. Yeah. You're willing to die. Mm-hmm. So if you put that away, then you're going to have really no chance to get hurt. And so the same thing with the Christian. You have to realize that as we're going in, we already have to realize That's right. Dead to the world, alive to God. That's right. That's a good point. We're already dead in that sense.
said that no matter what, you would have removed the IPC. I did. Yeah. Um, what would a faithful description of the IPC look like? Well, that's a good question. And I think there's a lot more work to be done in that area in terms of what would a faithful Christian theocracy look like. The first thing that I would say is that in order for there to be a faithful Christian theocracy, you, it cannot be top down. It has to be bottom up. All right. And what I mean by that is that the populace itself has to be following Christ and largely discipled. And that means you have to have a church that's doing her job in discipling that nation. Because otherwise, it simply will not work. Um, you're not going to have, I think, a, a godly Christ-honoring theocracy apart from having a populace that is largely Christ-honoring. Christ and I would say, very basically, beyond that, a, a God-honoring theocracy would be one that recognizes the lordship of Christ and, and how it executes the law and how it legislates, all right? So it uses God's definitions from his word and his principles established in his word as its ultimate moral authority. It doesn't try to uh, appeal to any other authority, moral authority outside of God himself. Um, so that would be a bare minimum requirement, recognizing who Christ is and submitting to him in our laws would be a first step. But that can't happen until I believe that the Spirit has done his work through the ministry of the church in bringing a nation to Christ. Yes. Yeah. Conflict of uh, ultimate authority. So, yep. can you kind of flesh out where we go from there? Because yeah. it's one thing to mm -hmm. say, well, I don't believe in scripture. That's meant to sweep us off our feet. Right. Yeah. Right. So, well, you do the same thing to them at that point. Because what, what you do have there is you have the idols. You have Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant at that point. All right. Who, who's, the right who's the real authority? Okay. So, you have to do what Elijah does. And you have to point out to them that their idol actually is blind and dumb and mute and, and demonstrate to them that their authority, their authority that they're appealing to is no real authority at all. And I can give you an example of what I mean, all right? Um, one time I was doing a, a public thing with atheists down at the uh, Fort Wayne Library. We watched a, a, a movie called Collision and then we had a discussion afterward. And um, it was amazing how many atheists, I mean, there were probably 100 atheists waiting to talk to us, raising their hands and everything. And one of the young ladies who was there was really taking me to task on slavery in the Bible, which I'd love to do. But slavery's in the Bible, that makes the Bible bad, all right? How, how can the Bible be true when it promotes slavery? And the right response to that, of course you want to be able to make the case for the, bibl the biblical view of slavery. You want to be able to lay that out. But before you do that, I, you can't grant them their argument. She's assuming that there's some other standard outside of Scripture that teaches us that slavery is objectively evil. And so how I'm going to respond to an opponent who is telling me the Bible is bad and wrong because it has slavery in it, is I'm going to say, well, okay, before we talk about that, this is what I want you need to prove to me, all right? You need to prove to me that slavery is objectively evil. Demonstrate that to me. How do you know that slavery is wrong? 
and not just a matter of mere opinion and preference. So once you establish that to me, then we can talk about the Bible. But first, you have to prove, prove that point. And at that point, I'm challenging her idol. I'm challenging her to pull out her authority that she's referring to and using to as a judge of Scripture and saying, okay, well, let's, let's have it then. Make your case for, for the wickedness of slavery. And they won't be able to do it. They won't be able to do it in the end. And what, and what that does then is that you're able to demonstrate to them that their idol is indeed deaf, mute, blind, and ineffectual. And, and hopefully at that point, by, the, by God's grace, the Spirit will awaken them to Christ. Perhaps it won't. And they'll just get angry and frustrated at you. And this particular young lady I was speaking to asked me if I wanted her to punch me right in the face. <laughs> and I, I said no. And she didn't, and I'm glad, because it would have been embarrassing to be knocked out by a girl. But, <laughs> but does that make sense? So, right, if they're going to challenge the authority of Scripture, you respond by challenging their authority, challenging their idol. That's what, that's what Jesus did, right? When the Pharisees said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things, and he says, well, was John's baptism from man or from God? Yeah, you tell me that first. And what do they do? Uh, we don't know. It's like, oh, well. Yes. 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 I think you're you're absolutely right. When when you, the authority of Scripture is being questioned, and anything Scripture says, the best tactic, as far as I can tell, is to go after their foundation. And just ask them questions. Ask them to substantiate right, the foundation they claim to be standing on. Right? Because the, the reality is they have no foundation. And so by doing that, you're attempting to show them that. And you're attempting to show them that in a respectful way. So they come, hopefully will come to the realization on their own, I have no argument. I have nothing to, I'm, I have nothing to stand on. But yes, I think that is a wise, a wise strategy, just to ask them questions. And the key question you keep asking them is, but you have to, you know, you don't just keep saying this to them, but this is what you keep asking. How do you know? Who told you? Right? How do you have this knowledge? Who's your source? Who's your authority? Help me understand, right, where that's coming from. Um, and that will uh, hopefully open their eyes to the fact that they, they don't have any foundation. Does that make sense? Okay. And that's yes. also Yeah. There's a point where you just throw them a lifeline and say, well, this is what you know is true then, right? Like, give them a chance to... Yes, if, if they give you that opportunity, if they stick around long enough, yes. <laughs> because what you, the fact you have to confront them with is that they can't get away from objective truth, right? They want to, they want to say the Bible is not true and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and there is no such thing as absolute truth, but the fact is, because they're, they're offended by, by the Bible and claiming that it's false and immoral and everything else, that they are assuming there is such a thing as objective truth and that they, it's inescapable. And if you, if you really want to be 
crafty with them in a good sense. You can point to them that the fact that Christ himself is inescapable because he is the truth and they can't get away from him and even in their own thinking. I could recommend a book to help you think along these lines. It's by Greg Bonson and it's called Always Ready. And it's a book on apologetics and he walks through these things. Um, so that would be a book worth reading, I think, because he, he kind of lays out how to approach these arguments with unbelievers in a, in, a, uh, in a congenial way, but also in a very succinct way. So you're not getting locked into, um, you know, a, a, an, endless, an endless discussion.